The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, listeners. Um, this is Inspire FM, and you're listening to the Ask Your Lawyer show on Monday from 7 to 8. My name is Giazuddin. I'm a director at Wolf & Company Solicitors. And today we've got a fantastic show on for you, and it's related to fraud. What is fraud? How is it committed? What types of fraud are there? We're going to take a general look at the uh, benefit fraud guidelines as well. Um, what I want you to do, listeners, if you've got any questions whatsoever or you want to make a comment, please do call in on 01582481822. You can also WhatsApp and uh, text on 0779481822. I think we're being live streamed on Facebook. You can Twitter. There's Instagram and a YouTube account as well, I think. So do have a look. Uh, whatever means is uh, uh, um, preferable to you, go on there and have a look. Do call in. We really value your uh, input. Uh, joining me today is a very good friend of mine who is an extremely, extremely talented uh, barrister, the lovely, lovely uh, Leslie Manley of Church Court. Hello, Leslie. Hello, Gaius. Thank you very much for inviting me on your show. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Um, Leslie is actually, um, should I say, an experienced barrister who's done a lot of work and good work around hearts, beds and bucks. And she'll be very familiar to my clients, certainly. Um, and she's assisted in criminal cases as well as civil cases as well. Leslie, you're a barrister from Church Court Chambers, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yes. Tell us a, a, bit, a bit about Church Court Chambers. What do they do? What kind of work they do? Well, Church Court really came into being in about 2013 when Karim Fuad headed up the Chambers. We're really fortunate because it's in the most beautiful location. We have the Temple Church opposite. It's great Chambers, really lovely people. Predominantly criminal work for many people. Mm-hmm. There are quite a lot of people in chambers who also have other specialities human rights immigration several fields of law really uh, but vast majority of people do criminal work and listeners if you do need a, 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 a any representation and you've got solicitors you can even go out without solicitors because some of the barristers do direct chamber direct access you can uh, um, look at the website for church court chambers and have a look at uh, the experts there you are you are allowed to request any expert that you want on to represent you right um leslie um, we'll talk about your personal background in the second half of the show but i wanted to crack on with the uh, subject today fraud um just general overview, what is fraud and generally describe what kind of legislation it's covered by? Well, to simplify it as much as possible, fraud is really where a person is acting dishonestly, where a person's not being honest mm. and they're really engaging in some form of deception and that's either to make a gain for themselves or to cause a loss to someone else or to expose another person to the risk of loss. So really dishonesty is a key issue with fraud. All right. When you say gain for themselves, um, give give us an example. What does that mean? Uh, That They want to make money for themselves, is it? Yes. um, Fraud, typically people tend to think of fraud as something very boring, very document-heavy, very paperwork-orientated. But... They, fraud actually can be committed in, in many, many ways. And so the idea of making game for yourself, as you've just um, asked me, for instance, very simple example, I've had two cases recently, two clients separately have mm-hmm. gone into banks and they've tried to withdraw money from an account the fraud being the accounts were not theirs. They ah. were pretending that they were their bank accounts and they w- that they were entitled to that money. So that that's really one clear example of trying to make a game for yourself. Right. To- On the same side of that coin, though, if I went into a bank and tried to withdraw money from somebody else's account, presumably that loss to someone else is covered there as well because you're making the bank lose money. Is that correct? Yes, or, yes. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, okay. Um generally talking and let's have an overview about this how does fraud uh, what happens if your 
convicted or you plead guilty to committing a fraud, what can happen to you? Well, there are sentencing guidelines that are laid down. Mm. And as, as I was explaining, frauds can be perpetrated in, in just so many ways. Mm. There's the example I just gave you. There's making false uh, declarations on documents. So trying to obtain a mortgage, for example, right. that you're not entitled to. Okay. Uh, people making fake insurance claims, pretending they were, were ill. On, Let's use one of those on examples, holiday. yeah? Let's do, use so, one of your examples. Um, somebody goes into, like, uh, or does a fake insurance claim. Um, and the insurance claim, let's say the risk covered was 500,000, 600,000 pounds. Tell us how they would get punished for those kind of things. What kind of things would the courts and police look into um, before they started punishing these types of people? Well, there, there are now very clear guidelines set down. So mm. the judge would look at, firstly, uh, what's called culpability. Okay, yeah. So what I'll do, if this is all right, yes, is I'll take you through what is meant by Absolutely, that would be culpability. Yeah, yeah. So there are three brackets. The highest is bracket A, high culpability, then B, medium culpability, and C, lesser culpability. Okay. So what the court would look for is in respect of A, so if whether there's high culpability. Just, just so our listeners know, I'm sure most of them do. Culpability, just in simple terms, what is culpability? Is it responsibility, guilt? Okay. That that's really you know right. how okay. guilty, responsible okay, so you are. Yeah, brilliant. Is how I would okay. put it to simplify it. Okay. Yeah. So, what the court would look for is, excuse me, is whether the person played a leading role okay. when offending's part of a group activity. Mm-hmm. In the example you've just kept given, it, it, it that doesn't arise because it's one person, I think, making a, a fraudulent right. claim. Mm-hmm. Involvement of others through pressure or influence. Obviously doesn't apply here. Doesn't no. apply. Uh, abuse of power, position of power or trust or responsibility. Mm. Doesn't really apply here. Sophisticated nature of offending, significant planning. Uh, let me take you one step back in that sure. abusive position. What if I was like a mortgage broker or something um, and I had inside knowledge of how the workings of this? Would that technically be me abusing my power? Or if I was in a bank, say, for example, and working for the bank and I thought, well, I'll just, I know what's going to happen here. I'll use my position uh, and put through a quick, quick thing. Would that be part uh, abuse it, of power? In my opinion, I think it would. I think you would fall into that category because you have... A position of trust and responsibility. Okay, okay. Um, uh, it, it's arguable, but I, I, I think that you would. Okay. Um, sorry, yes. Uh, significant nature of offence, sig- sophisticated nature of offence, significant mm. planning. Arguably, if you go to the trouble of submitting an application in that way, it's not spur-of-the-moment thing, I wouldn't have said. It could fall into that category. Mm. Fraudulent activity conducted over sustained periods of time, Mm. that doesn't really apply in in this sort of case. It's not, for example, an employee going in and systematically uh, cooking the book, so we call it. Um, Deliberately targeting victim on basis of vulnerability, that wouldn't really apply here with a financial institution. So the judge would look to see if any of those factors are present. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they are, then you would go into that bracket to start with. If they're not, you would then look at medium culpability. Uh, So... Scott here, a significant role where offending is part of group activity and other cases where categories A or C are not present. Category C is a a lower one. Even lower, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of covers, it gives the court flexibility. It does seem to, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then lesser culpability is involved through coercion, 
intimidation or exploitation. That would not be this case. That sort of thing happens sometimes when people, um, in my experience, people have come here to work, they don't have family, friends, and then they're taken advantage of by somebody more established. Yeah. Um, that That's one example. Mm-hmm. Um, not motivated by personal gain. Peripheral role in organised fraud. So if you're a real small player yeah. in a, a sort of gang-type setup, opportunist one-off offence, very little or no planning, uh, limited awareness or understanding of the extent of fraudulent activity. Mm. Um, I want to take you to a couple of these points, mm-hmm. actually, Leslie. Yeah, not motivated by personal gain. Presumably, if you're committing a fraud, you're always motivated by some kind of gain, aren't you? Yes, you are, but there can be instances where it's not so much that you're greedy for money, that that you've done something maybe to help a family member or, or there's some mitigating circumstance. You're not just doing it uh, for your own self. Right. So, for instance, with benefit fraud, that I think you're going to ask me about mm. later, there's a big difference between someone calculatedly doing a benefit fraud um, because they, as one of my clients did, wanted to have a a holiday in New Zealand, as opposed to someone doing it because a relative was sick and they were desperate to feed them. So it's that kind of... so That that kind of nuance in each case, yeah, they look look to see what was the real motivation behind it. Yeah, so so I, I can really see the force of your question because generally, yes, people steal or do frauds, usually... To get something for themselves, yeah. So immediately, though, mm-hmm. when you when you're looking at those three kind of things, mm-hmm. the, the the how guilty you are, high, yeah. medium, or lesser, presumably a barrister like yourself or counsel like yourself, you'd go in and immediately your job would be if your client was facing this kind of issue to bring the client's culpability down as much as possible, yeah. Definitely, yes. To because that can make a big difference. Well, as you know, yeah. Because um, if you're um, extensive experience as a solicitor you know that if you can put them in a lower bracket it really helps them yeah and it and, and, and listeners from my own personal experience and I'm, I'm sure leslie will vouch for this um and we're not just saying this we can do this job other people do do this job when you have good counsel and you have good solicitors the first thing that they try to do is chip away at these types of things and bring people down uh, uh, um, in the categories and that will help that's the first step in helping them get an appropriate people seem to think it's lesser it's not lesser an appropriate sentence and that's what the yes. whole aim of the game is um, uh, because a lot of people say oh, why should people get a lesser sentence it's not about lesser or higher it's the most appropriate and a judge will look through it and get, give them the most appropriate and all we need to do is point out the facts and fit them to the uh, guidelines the next thing that they look at uh, or the judge will look at, and Leslie is harm. Is harm. Yeah. Yes, I, that's right. So when, once you've been decided which category you've gone into, mm. the harm, and it's it's quite interesting because it's set out in financial terms. Okay. Um, so category one is half a million pounds or more. Right. The starting point of sentence based on a million. Mm-hmm. Um, category two is a hundred thousand up to, up to half a million. Mm-hmm. And then category three, twenty thousand to a hundred thousand or the risk of yeah. to a person. Uh, category four, five thousand to twenty thousand. Or risk of yeah. uh, category three harm, and then less than five thousand is category five. So the sentencing depends up to a point on the loss and the risk, uh, the risk of it, the exposure to the risk of loss. See, ordinarily you might think that that's pretty pretty easy to categorise because you'll say, well, 
let's see how much you were aiming to take off someone or aiming to lose or what representation that you made. But I suppose it can be argued, can't it? In actually what you were aiming to harm someone or the risk, um, mm-hmm. I suppose. And I've seen you, Leslie, quite eloquently argue this in court as well and bring down what people thought was huge cases into much lower. And a benefit for all seems to be a particular one where this can happen, where people say, and I've seen uh, counsels, uh, well, prosecutors say, well, the risk was... 100,000, for example, and then in reality, mm-hmm. when you argue it down, it comes out to much, much less than that. That's um, right. Do you want to give any examples? Can you think of any off the top of your head? If you can't, we can. Um. I can't, sorry, not off the top of my head, but yeah. I will be thinking. Yeah, so obviously they'll take the first thing, which is the harm, then they look at the category of loss. Um, like I say, if we said £600,000, so this guy will be category one in the in this world. Wouldn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So and then what's the last thing that they look at? Well, they look at the impact. Um, mm. So high impact, victim impact, mm. and what I think is quite interesting about this is that you can have, in fact, a case I was involved in, one person lost ten million. Pounds. So you would. He was the biggest financial loser, and you would think that he would be the one that suffered the most. But in fact, because he was a multimillionaire, he could bear to right. lose ten million. He wasn't happy about it, but he could bear to lose it. Whereas someone who lost a lot less, but was a widow, and mm. it was her life savings. The impact on her was massive. was was massive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so they look at that. Do they do they really look into those kind of details? Obviously, it take a good officer at the start of it to take those kind of statements, wouldn't it, to to present that to the court? Yes, um, but where it set out here, uh, high impact, um, serious detrimental effect on the victim, whether financial or otherwise. Mm. Um, for example, it's put here, substantial damage to credit rating, for yeah. instance. Uh, victim particularly vulnerable due to factors including, but not limited to their age, financial circumstances, mental capacity. Mm-hmm. So that very much is on the scale, or all falls really with what I was trying to say about the 10 million versus the old lady who lost her life savings. Then there's um, medium impact. So that says here considerable detrimental effects on the victim, whether financial or otherwise, or lesser impact, some detrimental impact on the victim, whether financial or otherwise. So the court factors all that in as well. How arguable are those kind of things on? How provable are they, to be honest? If someone comes and says, well, look, listen, you've devastated me left, right and centre, and, and, and they're actually multi-multi-millionaires or something like that. And how, how much could you argue? Or does it depend on how much work the uh, solicitor's done in the background to uh, uh, um, dig these things out? Well, some of it is on the face of... The actual papers, because you'll know that one victim is saying one thing, uh, and you right. will you will know, see that she's an elderly lady whose bank account has cleaned yeah. out. The same with big companies; you will see that yes, they've lost ten million, but they actually turn over a billion a year. And and uh, but other times, uh, yes. Um, the work done by the solicitors is is very crucial to, as you put it, and I think if you don't mind me saying that was really well put, getting the appropriate sentence uh, for people. Um, as you know, on top of the face of the papers, by which I mean what we get from the prosecution, mm-hmm. they do now go and get a victim impact statement from, from people. So, but, yeah, definitely work done by solicitors is often very crucial. Okay, um, we've taken our example, £600,000. Yes. Um, let's say he's taken it from a bank. Yeah, so you yes. make your judgment. And, the, and then we, what kind of culpability are you going to attribute to our person? And let's see what kind of sentence you think that he's going to get, or she. Well, the starting point of five years is based on a million. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Oh, no, I beg your pardon. That was putting culpability yeah. in B. I'm afraid I will put the culpability from your example at <laughs> seven years. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I, I tell you why, because I would find, I would try to argue it down, but yeah. I would think there is significant planning because it takes a while to fill out mortgage application forms and things like that. And so the range, five to eight years custody, starting point based on the million, I would yeah. think provided the person hasn't done anything like this before, I would be hopeful of um, five years at the most. <laughs> five, okay, not bad. That's, uh, but, you know, if you could get it lower, in, then... Uh, let me give you two pieces of information, listeners, about what, um, uh, Leslie's background. She did actually prosecute uh, um, benefit fraud cases as well, so she's got in-depth knowledge about these things. That's why she can confidently say it will be high culpability rather than medium or lower. And obviously because of her experience in these types of matters, she, I, I can tell you that her this isn't guesswork that she's putting in. This is actually <laughs> actually <laughs> correct and uh, she's probably right. And our job obviously would be then to mitigate as much as we can and basically put the correct facts, not speculative facts, into the scenario so we can get you or a person sentenced appropriately. And that is something that Leslie is particularly good at, I should say. That's very kind of Okay, Leslie, so you've taken us through the <laughs> how the guidelines in sentencing works, and, and I'm sure that the listeners have found that interesting. Um, now let's look. Um, well, actually, I, wanted, I want to ask you something, actually. I've looked at your uh, uh, profile, and you've done some huge fraud cases, and, and one in particular that, that um, interests me. Um, the case of R versus G yes. and a cheat on the revenue for 1.2 million by two defendants. Give us an, up, give us a, a, an update on that. Tell us what happened in that case. That case was a really fascinating case, actually, because the defendants, I, I'd rather not name them no. because it's not embarrass them, but... Basically, just bear me one second. I'm so me, sorry. That's right. Um, listeners, the we can't actually name the defenders if we wanted to because it's the courts are open courts and people can go in there. What we're doing is refraining from naming them, um, although the case facts are known publicly, it's in the public domain. Sorry, Leslie, I just thought if anybody got alarmed that we were talking about. Oh, defenders. yes, so no, thought, thank you for explaining right. that because, as you say, it's all been in the public domain, it's not. Yeah anything confidential but I'd just rather not embarrass yeah, clients sure. if I could sure. can um, avoid that yes yeah. um, well they were, they were very um, bright people and they were husband and wife and they set up a very successful company and they owed corporation tax in the sum of £1.2 million pounds wow. to the revenue. They've done all right if they owe uh, £1.2 million in tax. Tax, yeah. And <laughs> yes. it, was, it, was, it, it was very successful. Yeah. Um, they paid quarter of a million. Right. But the revenue claimed that their account of, as it were, spending money and running it through various countries in the world was a, a sham device cheat the revenue out okay. of the 1.2 million and they had argued constantly that they had been told they wouldn't be prosecuted and there was never any evidence of that and what happened was I was co-defending with a very brilliant uh, tax uh, lawyer actually mm -hmm. so I was the criminal side he was the tax side and we had piles and piles of disclosure and we were assured that disclosure had been done properly and we we just read absolutely everything yeah. and noticed that one of the numbers was was different to the files we've got so that then alerted us to the fact there was another file and in that file, there was the agreement whereby they made a, a further payment and they'd been given immunity from prosecution. Tell us about that then. So, th so what had happened? They'd actually, the revenue had told them they wouldn't be prosecuted if they paid back some money. That's right. They'd come to this, this agreement and 
the this had been as it were buried not deliberately mm. by anybody and they'd already they'd had previous solicitors counsel wow. um they'd had one abuse of process argument stayed uh, sorry ruled against and so when we found this we um we were able to go back and renew that application and therefore the prosecution came to an end well so they backtracked and they took the uh Prosecution out of the court. Oh, no, well, no, oh, wow. the judge no. stopped it because wow. of the, what was found in that file. But uh, as I say, we've been assured all the time we had everything, but we didn't. So, um, and and where, was it, where was this discussion to not to, uh, or this agreement not to prosecute? Where was it recorded? Was it recorded officially? Or? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And then they said they, well, you say accidentally they, or not deliberately, they, they yeah. ignored that and they went forward with it. And to, I'm just yes. conscious of the time. We've got 20 seconds left. Um, um, I will carry on with uh, uh, this discussion and we will carry on this discussion after the break, listeners. Um, we've got plenty to get through to and we're going to speak about the actual offences and how they committed it as well. So, inshallah, see you after the break. Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz. Listen to Inspire FM shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, listeners. Uh, welcome back to the show. This is Gia Zuddin on the airwaves, one of. 5.1 FM Inspire FM. Um, you can call us on 01582 481822 or 0777 481822 for WhatsApp and text messages. It's the Ask Your Lawyer show, and I'm joined by the lovely Leslie Manley of Church Court, who, and we've been talking about fraud, um, how it's committed, what the uh, sentencing powers are. And Leslie very kindly gave us an anecdote about some of the cases that she's been on. Now, Leslie, uh, you've been wo- working as a barrister, or you were called as a barrister, in 1983, is that correct? It is. You certainly don't look old enough for uh, uh, 1983 <laughs> call, Leslie. You're very kind. Very kind. <laughs> um, tell us about some of the work that you do, some of the general work that you do. I know you do, it's just not fraud that you do. You do other stuff as well, don't you? I do. I have now concentrated on defence work only yeah. for the last about 10 years, really. And I have a mixed assortment of work. So, for instance, this year I've had human trafficking case... Uh, sexual offences, yep. blackmail, kidnap. Last week, two robberies, a robbery trial and uh, another a plea on a robbery. Today, aggravated burglary. So it's quite a mixture of, of work, really, different types of cases. Do you do any civil work uh, or is it just criminal work? Now no. it's just criminal. No, when it's I, just... Yes, sorry. When I started off, the first seven years, I did mixed common law. And so you could be in the county court one day on a possession action, wow. chancery division the next day on contempt, magistrates, and then you know, crown. But now I just concentrate on the one thing. And, and what keeps you motivated to do this job? Well, I just love it. And um, <laughs> I'm very lucky because I generally work with really nice people. You're one of them. Um, <laughs> you don't need to be kind to me. What, what I did want to say is that for people who are facing possibility of being accused of benefit fraud, mm. you mentioned earlier the work of a solicitor and mm. trying to achieve appropriate sentence and so forth, but what can happen with benefit fraud is because it's not at a police station... People quite wrongly think it's some sort of cosy chat they're going to have or they're not really aware of the seriousness and that they're being interviewed under caution, Police and Criminal Evidence Act. Well, we're going to go into that. We're going to certainly go into that. And I'm going to ask your opinions and and I'm sure Mm -hmm. the listeners will be interested to know whether they should be instructing lawyers or not in these types of cases when they're told, oh, don't worry about it, it's not that serious. Okay, let's look at the offences and and we can work our way way through them, can't we? Yeah. Yes. Um, So the types of frauds that we typically come across, um, fraud by false representation. What is a fraud by false representation? It's really, um, I, I would just 
call it for the average person, I would just basically say it's telling a lie, it's being deceitful. So the example I gave of somebody going on holiday, having a great time, putting the pictures of a great time on Facebook and then <laughs> coming back and saying, you know, I was really ill, yeah. I want my insurance money right. or whatever. Uh, that, the same, the going into the bank examples. That's making false That's false. You're saying it's not true, you know. You, it's not your bank account. You're not entitled to that money. So I, th I think the the... There's the Fraud Act, there's other pieces of legislation, but if if citizens, people just think, am I being honest, am I telling the truth or am I telling a lie, that, yeah. that that's really the key to... Wouldn't to fraud. most frauds involve some kind of false representation, though, Leslie, yeah? Yes. Yeah, they would, wouldn't they? Um, because I'm, I'm, try, I'm struggling to think how you would basically commit a fraud without giving some kind of inaccurate information somewhere you'd have to really wouldn't you and yet there, and yet there there is a specific offense of this false representation maybe someday we'll figure out what is what is a what is fraud by failing to disclose information what's that well the, the, an example that comes to my mind from mm. one of my actual cases is yeah. a lady who had been on benefits for many years mm -hmm. and she was entitled to these benefits and her two young children had savings accounts mm -hmm. she then um, had an inheritance her father w was very wealthy and he had quite a lot of property so she then inherited this money mm -hmm. now what she should have done was disclose that to the benefit authorities yeah she didn't what she did instead was put it into her children's accounts and it, even though the children had different uh, family names yeah. Yeah. the the accounts were actually very successful and they earned a lot of interest and however it's done with the software the software triggered off some sort of uh, alarm to the DWP, and and then it all came to light uh, through compute the computer picking up that these were her children and making links and so on. So that that's one example I think that she was supposed to give that information that she, and she, it was a lot of money she'd inherited and she didn't. So. Uh, that's one example. That's what, that's an example of the omission, I suppose. They're failing to disclose mm. something, aren't they? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, abuse of position. What's an abuse of position when it comes to fraud? I'll try to give us an example, Leslie, if you know what. I suppose we touched upon it earlier, didn't we? Yeah. I, I, I think we did. You gave that good example. Suppose you were a mortgage broker and you, you knew... Um, various deals were coming on offer and you thought that you could maybe buy a property for yourself mm. uh, but you didn't have the relevant savings or, or whatever and you made yeah false representations to get the mortgage I see. I you know I was gonna I was gonna ask you quickly one, one thing when it, when it comes mm. down to those kind of abuse of position the offence of insider dealing and insider trading mm. would that cross over into this, where you, where you where you would obviously know you could abuse your position and predict what's going to happen, or know even some deals going through, and then and would that come under the fraud line and fraud guidelines? Well, I'll be honest, I'm not sure what piece of legislation it would be prosecuted under, but it certainly would be, would because yeah. there you are, you're privy to information that no one else has, and you're using it to rig the market, as it were, <laughs> yeah, or yeah. benefit yourself. So, yeah, I yeah, think so. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I've been researching mm. this show, there's been plenty of examples of those kind of offences compared to uh, the ones that we hear mm. about in every single tabloid, which is benefit fraud. And I can assure you, listeners, there's a massive discrepancy in the amounts that we're talking about. And there's a, mm -hmm. I would, obviously, as a defence, look, coming from a defence background, mm. I'm going to be accused of saying these kind of things. And, 
being sympathetic to people who commit fraud. I'm not. I can assure you that. But I sometimes do wonder why so much resource is put into investigating benefit fraud claims when other kind of frauds, which are done higher level, are, seem to be... Uh, Less, less well investigated. Yeah, well, not investigated. Mm. I'm sure they investigate, but less well publicised. I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that th- that seems anomalous to me. Anyway, uh, I digress. Um, well, actually, uh, this might be, if you don't mind me yeah, mentioning yeah, it now, go, go a good time to say that if you are unfortunate enough to be called in for a DWP interview, mm. you are entitled to free and independent legal advice and people don't often realize that and it can make a big difference because it can make all the difference between whether you're cautioned whether you're prosecuted at all even so I really would should anyone be in that unfortunate position I really would say you're told you're entitled to free and independent legal advice call up pull up Gear, so I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a solicitor and, yeah. and, and, ha- and be represented because th- these interviews can be quite challenging. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you make, Leslie. Um, um, because, and as I say, this isn't, this isn't a plug for us uh, in particular. You should. I think it's good advice that Leslie's given uh, um, that you should be undertaking the services of a solicitor's um, because in these types of interviews they are they don't actually charge you they are covered by legal aid so you can have a solicitor there and 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 i'm sure leslie will will uh, agree with me that in the long run if, if if you are prosecuted then it does help your barrister to help you in court as well and in the short term obviously you have somebody there even for comfort's mm. sake you have somebody there assisting you um, so it, it, it wouldn't make sense not to take a solicitor with you. So and and uh, in fairness, whether it's a legal local authority prosecution or UW, I've never seen a scenario where they haven't offered a client a solicitor. It's just that the clients have sometimes thought, well, I don't need one. Don't fall into that trap where you think everything's going to be okay. You're being asked to give an interview under caution for a specific reason, and it's because they think that you've been dishonest. Um, Leslie, we were going to talk about false accounting next. Well, f- false accounting is really when you're misrepresenting the the true position either of an individual or a company. Mm-hmm. Um, I get, to use the colloquial expression, you're cooking the books, basically. <laughs> you, you're just saying, I hope that's not too... No, uh, of course not. No, no. <laughs> uh, I think that's What's the best the, phrase to use in the circumstances. I, th- I think, yeah, you know, you're, you're misrepresenting uh, the real position and you can be doing that for a number of reasons. You can be doing it to get a lower VAT bill or a lower revenue bill than you should be, for instance, mm-hmm. or you can be doing it misguidedly to help out a company if you're an accountant you know you could you can think well they're in trouble but they can trade their way out of it so you're allowing them to fraudulently trade by misrepresenting their position Mm. so yeah i think to keep it as simple as possible that's what you're doing you're just putting the figures that are there are not correct really fine and i suppose the victims off the back of that could be one revenue and customs be out of two the uh, shareholders in the company they all could get well yes and also people who trade with companies because oh, yeah. if yeah, you traders, think a company's yeah. solvent yeah. and you give them goods or material on credit and then actually they're not really solvent they're never going to pay you that's a it's brilliant quite point. serious yeah. yeah creditors you're right creditors okay um the next one, uh, which is interesting, possessing, making or supplying articles for use in fraud. Possessing them for fraud. What kind of things could someone possess to use in a fraud? Well, all sorts, really. Um, for instance, um, false documents, false passports. Yeah. Um I had a case where it's quite it was global sophisticated fraud and the top top of the gang mm-hmm. I call it that the head people um were selling globally holidays and accommodation that didn't exist right but to launder the money they were getting 
quite vulnerable people who'd come here to get jobs and work but fallen on hard times. They were providing them with false passports and false identification documents so they could open bank accounts in false names and launder the money through the bank accounts. Mm. And in that case, the man who did the forgery or the supply of those false documents, he got quite a significant sentence because the judge said, if it weren't for your activities, it wouldn't have been so easy for all these others to be opening these fake bank accounts. And they, they had to have high-quality fake identification. Wow. Um, so that that's one, one thing. Um, I, there are machines as well that people can attach to ATMs to make divert cash to them as it were that's that's another example that i can think of let's go to the classic fraud that everyone thinks of revenue fraud um what is revenue fraud for vat and those kind of things just give us a general overview um what kind of examples do people do what kind of things do they do I know it sounds, we may have covered it already, but I think it would be mm. good to alert our listeners about you know, the pitfalls and the things that they can accidentally get into thinking, well, I'll just do that, and, it, and it's actually offence. I heard that representing a, a, a check that you know isn't going to uh, cash is, 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 a, is a fraud. Isn't that correct? That's yeah? right. Yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, it's It's really... Well, a, a classic example would just be misrepresenting your expenses. You know, if, you, if you're doing a tax return and saying, you know, I, I stayed at this hotel because I was on a case in Manchester, yeah. whereas actually you were on holiday with your family mm. yeah. or something, um, and, and it's not a proper deductible offence. Yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. expense, expense. Yeah. yes. Uh, so that's then, considered a fraud, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. If you're if you're setting off expenses against the revenue, you would say this has been my income, this has been my expenditure, such as running the office, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But if you inflated them, the expenses artificially to lower your profit, to lower your tax liability, yeah. that would be fraud. Same with VAT. It's exactly the same with VAT. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the final things that I want to go into in, in reality with with fraud is benefit fraud. Let's talk about the simple benefit frauds that people, the traps that they can fall into. What kind of benefit frauds are they? I know that we we've, we've gone on about false representations, but and not declaring things. I think that that's the basis of benefit fraud, isn't it? Yes, it it is. Um, the very common one. Mm -hmm is working and claiming. Yeah. So people are working it could be in any industry, retail, taxi mm -hmm. driving mm -hmm. and so and forth claiming. and they think that, but that's they a very obvious one. Uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. The ones that I said tend to see people get caught out in not declaring changing circumstances. Explain those ones for us Leslie. Yes, um well there was the example I gave of the lady who inherited oh, yeah. money um and she should have Sad. Um, oh, yes, um, somebody, it, it's one of the things that the courts address is whether something starts dishonestly. Right. So if yeah, you make, if you're, you know, if you're, you've got a job and then you put in a claim and you know full well yeah. it's, it's just a fraud. Yeah. That's treated more severely than if, for instance, you're on benefits and you then get a job. Yeah. And then you you think, well, I'm struggling a bit, but I'll tell them next week. Right. And you never do. Fine. That, that's fraudulent. So behavior. what you're saying is if you, if you, if it's fraudulent from the outset, that's the words that they use, isn't it? Yes. Um, that, so yeah. basically, you make the benefit claim and then you start working. Mm -hmm. You're fraudulent from the outset because you mm -hmm. knew exactly what you were doing. You yes. started it fraudulently. Yes. Yeah, you made a declaration saying, I'm not working when mm. you were. Whereas if you're not claiming 
uh, 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 I suppose, uh, not say if you're claiming and not working, and then le- it happens later on, mm-hmm. then they, they see it l- more favorably towards you. Yeah, so a legitimate claim that became dishonest fraudulent and fraudulent. Uh, of course, it depends the circumstance, how long it went on for, you know, if it's yeah. gone on for, for years. It's interesting it's that because basically, mm. um, obviously doing some, some of these cases, you suddenly, you sometimes just see the amounts involved, specifically in housing and council tax benefit, because yes. those payments are huge, aren't they? They, they are. And they really uh, mount up over Yeah, a and people can technically be guilty or or involved in fraud cases amounting to hundreds of thousands of pounds yeah. because they've been claiming over years. Isn't that correct, yeah? That's absolutely correct, yeah. And then you can easily fall into those long prison sentence categories, can't you? You can. Um, sometimes I've had the experience of, of client... It, it, they, they're a bit frightened. Um, some And they don't know the system. So I actually had a client who was... She was a waitress and she was prosecuted. And actually, had she told the benefit people she was working the hours that she was, mm. she was she would have actually been fine because she was entitled yeah. to another a top-up benefit. Yeah. And she didn't know that. Yeah. And so that, that was a great shame of a case, really. Yeah, I've had a couple of those as well. I've had mm. one example where basically, I mean, typically people say, if you're claiming housing benefit, you shouldn't be living in a relative's house. But in reality, what you should be doing is declaring it to the uh, authorities mm-hmm. and then they make a decision about it rather than, yeah. I don't, you know, I've seen it a few times where people have said, well, you know, technically, if you just told us and there wasn't another property, yeah. you might have been entitled to stay there, but give us the choice rather than you make it and don't t- tell us. And another one interesting as well, uh, 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 Leslie, uh, actually, it's about uh, uh, um, a benefit fraud that was committed by not declaring somebody else living in the house. And again, they said, well, you simply had to tell us that they were the earning person, li- yes. person who was earning living there and we could have made our own decision. But those are the kind of... Issues that I find that a lot of our clients get caught up in. They haven't they haven't intended to go out and do anything deliberately, like start working after the claiming benefits, which is, I think, quite obvious mm-hmm. that you're committing a fraud there. Whereas something where they, you fail to, somebody's moved into your house for a long time, they're working, you're supposed to tell them um, if you're getting any money off them or if they're working anyway, you're supposed to just mm-hmm. declare it. And those kind of instant instances yeah. I've seen, um, people do get caught unaware and they've got to be careful, haven't they, Leslie, in these circumstances? Because you do sign declarations to say, I've checked. Yes, and um, it is a shame, as you say, because they just get caught up in something. And uh, I think sometimes fear affects people. They're worried. But in fact, as you say, they just told people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it would probably be... Or, be work out for them and that the authorities would know and they make the decision. They could make the decision, mm. yeah, because at the end of the day, all you can do is make the declaration mm-hmm. and let the authorities decide. And if they say to you, well, no, if that person lives in your house, you're not going to get benefit, you can ask the person to leave, I suppose. Couldn't yeah. you? Or, yeah. or you could uh, make an appeal, I suppose. Um, we've basically covered most of the uh, uh, offences. So I want to basically just give you a last... Uh, uh, word about money laundering when it comes down to these four types of offences. So tell us about the money laundering regulations because they affect fraud cases, don't they? They they do. I mean, regarding money laundering, um, the money laundering really comes about from a number of, of criminal enterprises, I would yeah. call them. So when people make money from crimes, mm-hmm. and often a lot of it, yeah. um, obviously they're doing it to make money, to keep the money, so they're trying to hide it. And there are so many ways that that, that can be done, really. That's why it's called laundering, really, isn't it? To wash <laughs> yeah. the money sort yeah. of thing. So... They do it by many different ways. Um, putting it... Often people will have partners who haven't got a criminal record of any sort, so they will want to access their bank accounts. They'll run it through their husband or wife's or partner's bank account. Um, or or businesses that, that do operate but are really pretty much a sham. Um, 
I had one client in Manchester who was very um, prolific in the drugs world, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, owned a number of... It was at gyms and martial arts centres that were really the device for him to to run the money money through that. But yes, I mean, in a nutshell, um, conver uh, converting criminal, criminal property, property yeah. really. Yeah. So, yeah. Did, essentially, what they it seems to me that the government are looking to do is recover the money that they think that you've made it illegitimately, should we say. Um, and the, in these types of circumstances, they will actually go at people who have committed benefit fraud, won't they? Even though technically they could be saying, well, look, you've given me housing council tax benefit and it's gone into the paying the rent. Yes. I've actually got the money. But they will look to recover still, won't they? They will. And yes, um, I think I'm right in saying that initially it was envisaged the proceeds of Crime Act would impact on drug drug, drug offences yeah. yeah. uh, but as you know it's now used in huge number of cases burglaries robberies where benefits can be yeah found and calculated I mean, in fairness to be honest with you uh, leslie what i've seen <laughs> is um quite hit and miss in terms of how much they investigate and some investigators going very deep and some tend to be a bit, bit more relaxed about these things. I mean, I, th I think it's a good initiative. It's not a bad initiative. I can see the thinking behind it. It's just that I find it strange that they look go after... If someone's made a clear benefit fraud and they've made a benefit from it, fair enough. Um, but I think that you can cross the lines here. Leslie, we've only got 20 seconds All to right. go. I really, really do appreciate you coming down today. It's been a very, very informative show. I hope our listeners have taken away as much as I have. Um, just before we go, join us next week for another segment on Ask Your Lawyer. And a shout out to my cousin Mahima, who's <laughs> recovering from a contagious disease. Assalamualaikum. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org. You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at inspirefmluton.